0: Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Holidaysburg area or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. This morning we are going to continue continuing our walk through Galatians. So we are in week seven already, which is hard to believe. Um, if you have not been here before, there are resources back there. There's a an overview paper. Um, there's a like bookmark thing that shows you where we're going and where we've come from. Uh, there are books in the back that sort of go along with and supplement some of the stuff that we're talking about with like Fruit to Root and Salvation and Justification and um, Knowing God. Uh, there are Bibles back there, so feel free to grab some of those things. Those are there for your benefit, to help you grow in your walk. Um... But first, I wanna start with a question. Who are you? Somebody comes up to you and introduces themselves and they're like, who are you? And sometimes in that conversation, it's about what you do, because we often tie those things together. I like to ask the question, Why do you do what you do? So, may not jump at you right away, the answer to these questions, but I think it's worth a pause to think about this because our text is gonna tell you who you are. And if you've already read it, you know where this is going. But some things to think about. Why do you work? Do you want to work? Is it something that you reluctantly do? Or something that you joyfully do? Some of that goes into the, why do you do what you do? Are you in a position that you have to work, because you have to provide for yourself or your family, or do you have to work because you have to pay back things that you owe? We're gonna talk a lot about identity today. And identity is often tied to who we are, what we do, why we do it. So our text today And yes, I know I was supposed to start in verse 26. I can't do it. So I had to go back a couple more verses. This is like one continuing thought. um, And we break it up so that it's not too overwhelming for one person, but also because we want to highlight different areas. But I was supposed to start in like the middle of a paragraph, and that's just not the way that I operate. It's hard for me. So I went back to the beginning of it. So... um, You'll see how these these ideas tie together, but we're starting in Galatians 3.23, and we're going to read that text. But before faith came, we were detained under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. So then the law became our guardian until Christ, in order that we could be justified by faith but after faith has come we are no longer under a guardian for you are all sons of god through faith in christ jesus for as many of you as were baptized into christ have put on christ there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are descendants of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. Now we continue in chapter four. Now I say, for as long a time as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he is master of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the time set by his father. So also we, when we were children, we were enslaved under the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent out his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those under the law, in order that we might receive the adoption. And because you are sons, God sent out the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Crying out, Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, also an heir through God. Lots of good stuff there. So our main point today... is this, and you're going to have to write quickly. I'm just kidding. I'll take some time. When you trust in the good news of Jesus Christ, you are redeemed, making you a son and heir of God. So faith in the gospel leads to some amazing truths, which have really hit me hard this week, been super rich if you recall from last week adam was talking through the argument paul was making to the judaizers in regards to the law and the promise made to abraham and his descendants and the offspring now as a reminder the judaizers are jews who accepted christianity that is jesus being the messiah but they still believed that they needed to adhere to the law. So the people had forgotten or had been confused about the role of the law and what it meant for them. And then also now this was spreading to the Gentiles and how does that play into them? You got these new people coming into faith. Are they supposed to adhere to some of the law? They're not really Jewish. Like how does all that stuff work? So that was a lot of chapter three. There's so much theological meat in this book that it's sometimes hard to digest it all. But today is mostly an illustration. It's a picture of who we are because of the truths that have been stated. So, I've broken this main idea down into two parts. Hopefully simple. We only have to cover two things. One is that Jesus redeems slaves and makes heirs. Which is pretty awesome. And then the second one is that we are adopted as a son of God. So this is two gigantic truths that are weaved through this passage. So we're going to actually have to walk through the whole passage for each one of them because they are, it just, they sort of mesh together. And then at the end, they're, they're united. So the first one, initially, this sort of sounds like they're the same thing. You're like, nah, are they really even that different? Um, But the first one is actually performed by God. So that is justification, the the redemption, the paying of the price. And then the second one, the adoption as a son, is an emotional experiential truth that has to do with our relationship with him, which is different than just justification. But I would argue, potentially a sweeter truth. Okay, so the first one, Jesus redeems slaves and makes heirs, makes heirs. So we're starting in verse 23. So if you remember the argument that was going on between the Judaizers and Christians, um, early in chapter three, Paul poses the question, why the law? Has it become unnecessary or is the law something that they still need to follow? And this is how God's people were identified for hundreds of years. So you can see why they were sort of attached to it and they felt like there was value in it and continuing in it. So the argument continues here in verse 23. That they were detained under the law and imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. So then the law became our guardian. So really the law was doing two main things. One, it identified God's people, which is what they were holding on to. They were holding on to their identity. This was... This was the way that they showed that they were following God. So, and that's a good reason to follow it. But the second one was that it imprisoned them. It imprisoned everybody because it showed their sin, it highlighted their separation from God. And that's what they needed to let go of because that payment had been paid. They weren't supposed to stay there. They're not supposed to stay under the law. The guardian was not the end goal. So in verse 24, we see that our guardian until Christ in order that we could be justified by faith. So faith in Christ, who he is and what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection frees us From the Guardian. Now the imagery here is unusual. And we don't really talk about slaves and free anymore. Because in our history, we have bad imagery associated with that. Africans being brought to America, being treated inhumanely, it draws up all kinds of uncomfortable feelings. this meant something different to them. So in their time, slavery was not a bad thing. Slavery was a way of life. It was a way to provide for your family. If you had nothing, you gave of the only thing that you had, you gave yourself. You said, I will work for you if you provide for me and my family. So you would work for them maybe you were indebted to them and it was a certain amount of time or there was a there was a a set of rules or exchange that was going to take place and in response to that the guardian the person you were working for provided for you so they provided food and shelter and basic necessities and this was a symbiotic relationship you helped them and they provided for you. So don't view law or the guardian and slavery with the eyes of an American in 2020. View it through their eyes of what it meant to them as like the guardian was actually a good thing. It was there to protect them. It was there to provide for them in their time of need. So, our point here is the law guarded God's people until Christ came. So, then in the beginning of chapter four, Paul starts to draw out some more of this illustration. If you were an heir when you were still a child, he's no different than a slave. So, this is referring to maturity and time. So, the heir doesn't automatically have free rights to everything when they're a child. They're under the rule of whoever the king is at that time. So sons and heirs and slaves are all under the guardians and the managers until the set time by their father, as he says in verse 2. So this sounds a little bit wonky, but if you actually like take a picture of like. A king and his castle and you think about how things took place in that kind of setting everyone in the castle is under the guidance and the rule of the king the rules of the castle are for everyone like don't leave the front door open people are going to come in and take us over if you're a child of the king a future heir or one of the servants those rules are in place for the good of you and the rest of the castle, the rest of the people that are in there. They're for organization, they're for expectations, they're for making sure that the responsibilities are completed and that there's a, they're in place for the good of everyone. So even the future princes in the castle are under the guidance. Think of your children, like they're under the rules of your house not forever you you want them to grow up hopefully and, and move move on but for a time being those rules are there for a reason it helps them learn who they are and how to behave and what kind of how to take care of stuff like those things are good but they're restrictive and it's not the end goal Then in verse 4, Paul shows that the gospel plays into the, how the gospel plays into the law. When the right moment came in time, God sent his son, the God-man, born of a woman, imprisoned under the law. What a way for the God-man to enter the world. And he lived under the law, even though he was the king and he perfectly fulfilled the law in order that he might redeem those under the law as it says in verse 5 the idea of redemption we see throughout scripture it becomes very familiar to us but it should never we should never get used to it Take a moment and pause and put yourself in a position of a working servant in the castle. You can't provide for your family. You are grateful for your role there to be able to help them and for them to provide for your family. It's hard work and you have nothing else. The provision from the king keeps your family alive. And then the king comes to you one day and he says, your debt is paid. You're free. That's that make you feel. On one hand, you're excited. You're like, okay, like I'm free. I, I, can, I can move on. But then you're like, wait a second, I don't have anything. Like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna provide? Like part of the reason I was here was because I, I got nothing to bring. My pockets are empty. Empty pockets. I'm going to walk around the rest of the day like this. I got nothing. But verse 7. So that you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, also an heir through God. You were redeemed not just to set you free from the law, but to become an heir through the king. Jesus paid the debt and made you his brother. You are no longer under the guardian, but better than that, everything of the king's is yours. You don't have to worry about provision anymore. He's got you. Everything that's his is yours. It's hard to have a discussion about how this applies to us, because there's so many different places that we're coming from. We're in different situations, we have different outlooks, we have different histories. But my question is, in what areas of your life do you still struggle like a slave? Do you feel like you're working because you have to? Doing things because you you have to? And you're not living free like an heir to the king? Maybe you're in a bad place with your health and your finances, family relationships, just feel like your life is too jacked up and making grace and the purchase that Christ made sound too good to be true for you. Or maybe you hear this and you know it and you even trust that Jesus did make you an heir. But you have to do your part. You have to continue to serve. You have to dress a certain way or things have to be this way. You have to give a certain amount of money. You have to give your time. The good news of the gospel is not dependent on anything that you bring. God doesn't desire your begrudging obedience. This was not the intention of the law. It wasn't to beat people down into submission and push them to follow these rules. But that's often how it's used. This is what the Judaizers were doing. They were leading people astray, telling them that they had to do stuff. Or maybe the prison cell door is wide open. You are free to go. The shackles aren't even hardly on you. But you're too comfortable in your sin to let go of it. You have stuff. And you are dependent on your ability to provide for yourself. Sitting on a nice bank account or retirement. You landed a good paying job and you can provide for yourself. So the idea of needing to be set free or be dependent on someone else seems unnecessary. We all have struggles where we continue to go back to slavery and being dependent on something other than the King who has provided for us. Back to our main idea. You're like, this doesn't sound like such good news. It is. Hang in there. When you trust in the good news of Jesus Christ, you are redeemed, making you a son and an heir of God. Okay. Okay. So talk through Jesus redeemed slaves and he makes heirs. Our second point, we are adopted as a son of God. <clears throat> so adoption as a son of God is an equally amazing transformation. We are freed from the bondage of slavery but we also get to experience a relationship with God. Okay, so we're starting back at the beginning again. I'm actually gonna start in verse 26 this time. So Paul starts in verse 26 in chapter three, you were all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Meaning that yes, you are justified through the redemption, but there's also an identity change that happens. This is why he goes on in verse 27 to talk about being baptized into Christ, buried in his likeness and risen with him. Now a new person. You've taken off the old you and you've put on Christ. It's the same idea of being an heir. You're a new person, a new identity. He uses the term sons of God, not to exclude women, but there are parallel ideas being weaved together here. And he uses children later on to talk about that maturity aspect and to keep the ideas separate. He uses sons here. In fact, he emphasizes that there is no distinctions in the new identity. In verse 28, he goes on to say that there are no Jews or Greeks. No slaves are free. No males or females. You are all one in Christ. This isn't to, to say that those distinctions don't exist, but when you are in Christ, you are all one. All of those people are welcome. So everyone is in Christ is a descendant and an heir to the promise of Abraham. And this was circling back to his argument earlier on when he was talking about Abraham and who are the descendants and and they were getting all confused on that stuff. So it's not based on genealogy or wealth or gender or occupation. There's no earthly distinction here. God's family is based on who he is and what he has done. There's a closeness and relationship and God is not a genie in a body who just sets you free from slavery and then leaves you alone. Desires a relationship. We saw this a lot in Exodus where He was going with them in the tabernacle and He wanted to travel with them no matter where they went, what they were going through. Coincidentally, this is also where He gave them the law. So in chapter 4, Again, we have that imagery of the child being under the guardian and the manager in the time set by his father, referring to that that maturing up over time when the gospel is revealed. And we already talked through the gospel having implications in our justification before God. We're no longer slaves. We are set free. But there's more in verse 5. When Christ came to redeem, it was more than just removing from slavery. It was in order that we might receive adoption into God's family. Through the gospel, you are now God's son, even the girls. Adoption is a great word to use because it's not dependent on the one being adopted. It's dependent on the one who is doing the adopting. Nothing to bring. We were not previously able to come to the Father. There was a separation. Remember the picture in the tabernacle and the temple? There's a separation from God's holiness and the people. But Jesus took away that separation. And now, you can be adopted into the family. Now you can come to the Father. This next truth is huge. So if your mind has wandered off, come back. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, God sent out the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Through this adoption process, because you are now sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And it cries out for Him. And we're going to look at some other passages to put this into context so you can actually feel the depth of what is actually being said here by Paul. And it actually is quoted from Mark 14, 36. Where it says, let's start with some context. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane here. And he just walked perfectly following the law through all of his life. He just had the Last Supper with his disciples. And now he's facing the reality of, I'm about to bear the sin of the world and pay this price. I'm going to redeem God's people. And in verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take away this cup from me. Yet not I will, but what you will. How much love do you think God has for Jesus? How close of a relationship do you think they have? Jesus' cry and His desire is obedience and honor and glory for His Father. The closeness of their relationship is unlike any other relationship. In John 17, he says they are one. The Aramaic word here for Father, Abba, has been carried through so that we can feel the weight of the emotional experience of a son crying out to his father. So when it says in Galatians, that you have been given the spirit of Jesus and our hearts cry out to the Father. It's in the same emotional, experiential closeness. That is a relationship. That is a depth beyond anything that you have anywhere else in the world. We also see this show up in Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself confirms to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer together with him, so that we may also be glorified together with him." We see so much of the same language here. And if you wanna expand your your study of Galatians, this is a great place to go. Uh, Romans 8 talks a lot about the law and slavery and sonship and adoption, and how those things fit together, and then the resulting glory. It comes from that. So adoption as children of God is amazing news. There are many ways that the world will try to identify you. By what you do, by your occupation, by the way that you look, you're skinny, you're fat, you're dumb, you're smart, you're bald, black, white, weak, strong, Pathetic, failure. The list goes on and on. But what really matters is how God sees you. You see, He is the creator. And His design for you is not a mistake. People will try to use it against you, try to make you feel like you're less than or not quite what you should be. But when he looks at you, he sees his child. That's who you are. We can't hear that enough. When God looks at you, he sees the one that he created in his image. That he loved so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you could become, you could come back home. You are a child of the Most High God and he is for you being adopted as sons of God and having the Holy Spirit in us is a very same experience of relationship that God had with Jesus this can show up in so many different ways in our daily life. When you taste how sweet the meal of a caring father providing for his child, and you thank him, Abba, When you stand outside and you see the beauty of the sun rise up over the hillside and the colors painted across the sky. And the depth and the detail of His creation and how amazing that He made it. He created you with that detail. And you joyfully, amazingly proclaim, Abba. When you feel the embrace of peace amidst challenging times of death and pain and financial hardship and suffering, and despite those circumstances, you can rest in His embrace of a loving Father who's got that situation under control. He's your Abba. Back to our main idea. When you trust in the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, you are redeemed, making you a son and an heir of God. So we need to constantly reorient our daily lives to the truth of the gospel and what God says because we will often drift. We get pulled away. We hear all these negative things about us. We start to forget our identity. We forget who we are or who He made us. So how does the truth about God adopting you as a son change your day? Tomorrow or today, anybody. God Almighty is your Father. You have confidence in me. Walking confidently without fear. We change our behavior. More. In what way? How we treat people, <clears throat> loving our neighbors, ourselves. Exactly. Anybody else? It says in Philippians chapter four, "Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice, <clears throat> and uh, knowing this truth." so we can rejoice regardless of circumstances. On your best day, everything goes great. You're a child of the most high God. On your worst day, when you feel like a failure and everything is falling apart and everybody's against you, you are a child of the most high God. We've already heard a little bit of this answer. So how does adoption impact the way that you view others in your church family? Other, um, you know, just reminding them that whenever you pick out the flaws that, that we see in each other, that you're not just offending the person that you're talking about, you're offending our creator. Ooh. And rather than pick out those flaws, um, we need to, to be speaking truth and light into those and helping orient ourselves and orient each other so that we are glorifying God. And I think that that's extremely, uh-huh. as I say it to my children, I I hear the Lord saying it back to me. Um, so I think extremely applicable to all of us as so like, of oh God. Oh, that's good stuff. Rather than highlighting our differences or our weaknesses, encourage each other, care for each other well. Remember we don't have anything to bring. We're not here on our merit or on our Skills or abilities. It's the it's nature six, of adoption. Uh, Go ahead. Six, ten, but, so then as we have opportunity, that is do good to everyone. And especially to those who are the household faith. So there's a distinction you know, Yeah. Especially in church. Yeah, we should be able to recognize that more clearly here. <clears throat> Should be a safe place where weakness and failure is not a shameful thing. Well, then, eight verses prior to that, Galatians 6 2, you know, about sharing each other's burdens. Mm. Uh, and therefore, you proclaim Christ. You know, exactly. And if we're all adopted into, into the family of Christ um, as believers, then, you know, we ought to treat each other like family. We ought to treat each other like siblings. Um, and you know, we, we need to be there for each other. We need to share each other's burdens. We need to figure out what makes each other tick. And, uh, and you know, like that was saying, make sure that we're glorifying God in the process, but maintaining our relationships, uh, with each other are, are, are one of the main things that, you know, that's one of the main things that Christ said we need to do. I love you. You, I love everyone Mm else. And here we are. We need to treat each other that way. Yeah. I think it changes when we gather together. There's a sweetness to seeing each other. There's a sweetness to worshiping together and praying together and sharing burdens together and all of those things. Like it's like when we go upstairs now and we we celebrate and we sing together. Like we're crying out to our our King. We are adopted into this family together. We can all praise him and love him <clears throat> coming from the same place.